Hi everyone, it's March 6th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. I'm Salma Qureshi. This week we're very lucky to spend some time with John Lisman. John is currently professor of biology at Brandeis University's Volan Center for Complex Systems. A biophysicist by training and a visionary at heart, his research interests and accomplishments are varied and pervasive in the field. He's moved effortlessly between diverse fields like phototransduction, the neural code, memory systems, all using an experimentalist tools and a theoretician's meta-perspective to link molecules directly to behavior. John sat down with us to talk about some of his perspectives on the neural code, theta-gamma oscillations, and integrative approaches to looking at the brain. Thanks for joining us. Hi, John. Thanks for being with us. On our panel today, we have Charles Wilson. Hi. David Sensman. Hello. Brian Derrick. Hello. And Todd Troyer. Hello. So, um, John, different groups know a lot about the circuitry and structure of various different brain areas, but in your view, how do we go about fitting this fragmented knowledge into a cohesive integrative circuit model of the brain? And in your view, what do you imagine the final solution to the problem of brain organization actually looking like? So one thing I have to say first is why is it so difficult? And I think that it's actually you know, instructive to look at, at, at a case study uh, or maybe to compare two case studies like the basal ganglia and the hippocampus. And the advantage we have in the hippocampus is that we pretty much know what the structure does. And once you know what the purpose of the structure is, then you have a good chance of, of, of trying to guess and then test you know, what the actual circuitry that might mediate that function uh, is. But oftentimes in the brain, uh, as for instance with the basal ganglia, you're doing a double guess. You're trying to guess what the function is, and then you're trying to guess what your guess about the function uh, or how that how your guess about that function might be executed. And that's a really, really tough thing to do. So I, I think that often when we look at the at brain structures, we, we just don't have a good idea of the the basic function. That's what makes it makes it so hard. Um, so one, I guess I, I could turn that, that question on when you say that, oh, we know what the hippocampus does. Um, you could say that we know some things that the hippocampus does, and so then you use those things that we know that it does as leverage to understand that function of the hippocampus, right? So how do you think that we know what the hippocampus does kind of all, or we know some things that the hippocampus does, and that really gives us a leverage into a lot of hippocampal function versus, I mean, other people think that, you know, we have there's various opinions on what the hippocampus does, right? Well, there are certainly various opinions, but I mean, I think everybody broadly agrees that it's involved in memory processing. And the disagreements maybe have to do with how long a period the hippocampus is really important. Some people think that it's maybe only important for a year, and then everything becomes cortical. And other people believe that there's a, a continuing role, even in recall, for the hippocampus. So I totally agree that you know, we'll, we have a hard time being completely accurate about the hippocampus, but we have 
a basic idea. And, you know, it, it's been confirmed not only in human studies, but in rat studies and monkey studies. And so there's a, there's a strong foundation of saying, this is what we want to do, you know, how do we do it? And that's, that's, not, uh, that's just not the case in, in general uh, of saying, of being able to say, well, here's what it does, how do we do it? <laughs> so how about the rest of the question, though? Yeah. How do we piece together what we do know about those places that we do know something about, uh, even if we knew, if we had fragmented information about every part of the brain that was of adequate quality, how would we end up making an idea about what the brain does and how the pieces interact? Well, one, one analogy is to the general problem of puzzle, solve, puzzle solving. And I think if you're doing a crossword puzzle even, you know, at first it seems impossible, but then when you sort of build a piece of the pattern, it becomes much easier to place an individual piece, you know, next to its neighbor. And, and you know, my overall feeling is that that that's going to be the way the problem of, of solving the brain proceeds, that, that first of all, you have to keep on bringing all the pieces together. It may not, you, you may not see the light, but then there's going to become a sudden point where it's going to become much more rapid. Not necessarily instantaneous, but but it, 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 it's not a linear process. It starts out very slow, and then it gets much faster. And that's because you can start, you know, to build on relationships. So, for instance, you know, if you can gain some confidence about the kind of coding system that the hippocampus works, it utilizes, uh, that gives you a kind of constraint to say, well, if the basal ganglia listen to the hippocampus, then you know it's got to be able to understand information in the way the hippocampus formats data, and and so that's an example of how progress in one area can suddenly constrain the almost infinite thoughts that you might have about some other structure, and then and and and, and so knowledge will precipitate in some sense, as because what you ultimately need are constraints to solve a problem like this. Do you think um, building large-scale computational models is an important way to go in putting pieces together? So, I mean, uh, uh, if you proceed without enough constraints, even a large-scale model will be just wasting your time. And so this is, I think, why it's still a matter of artistry. You have to sort of find that some places which are really constraining you, so you just aren't wasting your time. Um, and, and that's why if you can build upon further and further constraints, it's so helpful, because you won't go off in all kinds of wild directions. On the other hand, I do believe that you can really learn a lot just by trying to build a solution to a problem, even if it isn't ultimately going to be the way the brain 
solves it just because until you become an engineer trying to solve a problem you can't really envisage in the sense the algorithmic solutions that are required so I I you know I would favor a lot of interactions between let's say robotics people who are just not totally caring whether it's neuromorphic or not but at least they're solving the navigation problem and they can say look here are 10 problems you have to solve and that the brain must solve and as neuroscientists and in certainly in the neuroscience training that my students at Brandeis get they would not be in any way exposed to you know the 10 problems that uh, speech recognition people are struggling with or the 10 problems that robotic recognition uh, people are struggling with. And I think they would really be better off if they, if they knew those 10 problems in each of the field. Um, so in that sense, completely unconstrained solutions can be mind-sharpening for the neuroscientists. But I also see that the dilemma of, of the functionalist trap, and, and it was a trap that cognitive psychology almost went into, and that is that if you, for instance, you, let's say you, have a, you can make a large-scale model of the brain, and it might work exactly like the brain, because it doesn't have any f referent relationship with the actual physiology and mechanism of the brain itself. And to a, the old cognitive psychologists in the old days, it didn't matter if the model worked, and it explained behavior that was fine, whether it related to brain function or not was irrelevant. And that is sort of a dead-end science. There's, if, if you can't build upon reductionist level on level on level, there's an irreferent relationship between your model and the actual physiology. It's really not helping anyone. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a toy that's interesting and works like a robot, but does it work like the brain? Well, maybe not, and since that's the big question, that's... that's that's, that's the danger with, with uh, pure modeling without any kind of biological realism. So uh, you've had many intriguing ideas about the determinants of the neural code. How does understanding the neural code conceptually impact the process of, of doing neuroscience, especially as we move away from thinking about the brain in terms of rate coding? How do, we, how do you see us changing our approaches to accommodate this paradigm shift? Well, when you collect spikes, you've got to plot them up somehow. <laughs> and, um, I mean, the easiest thing to do is just to plot them up as a rate, as a function of time. And I think that you know, we now have very clear examples of where that is really throwing away a lot of information. In the hippocampus, if you throw away the phase information, and by that I mean the fact that the spikes occur during an ongoing theta oscillation, and so each spike can be assigned a phase, you know, it's been very, very clearly demonstrated that you lose a lot of information that is encoded by the phase of those spikes. And so, in the hippocampus, uh, it would really be silly to, to restrict oneself to the plotting of data, the analysis of data based on rate. 
Um, so I think that that it's very exciting to to have other codes, and one thing that remains to be seen again is whether there's uh, even codes that can be built on codes. So, for instance, one thing that I've been wondering about is the importance of bursts. So, in the hippocampus, at least some neurons respond with very high-frequency bursts. And one very radical idea would be that these bursts are the neuron trying to say, listen to me, I really have figured something out. Whereas just an isolated spike now and then could well be noise. And facilitating synapses, which are numerous in the brain, respond selectively to bursts. And so it's not completely unreasonable to say that, you know, the important signals could be these very high-frequency bursts, and that neuroscientists who are collecting brain data might not only be wise to, to follow oscillations and, and to plot things, plot how their spikes relate to oscillations, but also throw out all the non-burst spikes. Now, that's a very extreme point of view, which I wouldn't <laughs> want to, to generalize, but still, it, it could be part of the analysis to ask, well, you know, is this a region of the brain that generates bursts? Is it talking to a region of the brain, uh, of the brain that has got facilitating synapses that are sensitive to bursts? In that case, I might better understand the communication of signals by throwing away the, the, the low-frequency spikes. So you got to be careful about throwing away. I mean, isn't part of the whole problem was that the people have been, you know, a, a whole community that's been only looking at spikes and throwing away all the intrinsic oscillations in the brain and not caring how they relate? So when, when you, when, what you want to do is to keep both, right, and look at the relationships between various, you know, changes in overall non-burst rates and burst rates and see whether there's a relationship. Okay, right. fair enough, fair enough. I, I tend to go to extremes just to make <laughs> things dramatic. <laughs> but, uh, need more that. but it could really, you know, I mean, you could, I mean, you could take the point of view that a downstream neuron actually gets confused listening to all the spikes and that it actually does better by filtering out the, sing the, the, the single spike. So that extreme point of view isn't, completely unreasonable from the point of view of the nervous system. I mean, it would be one hypothesis that could be explored. How many possible neural codes are there? I mean, it seemed to me that if we had a very clear enumeration of them, we could sit down, come up with an algorithm for figuring out which one was used where. Or are there scads of possible neural codes? Way too many for us to list? I mean, as far as I know, there has been too little thinking about this issue. And, and I can name a few that I've heard about uh, that you know, we haven't talked about here yet today. But I bet you, you know, smart people could come up with others and, um, and, and, and we could proceed from there. So, for instance, in the way I'm thinking about gamma, 
which is a sort of 40 hertz oscillation. My way of thinking, and, and I think there's some support for this in the hippocampus, is that the jitter of spikes within a gamma oscillation, that is, you know, two or three or four milliseconds, are not important. And that a downstream neuron could just lump this together and not lose information. This stands in contrast to, you know, models that Wolf Singer has been putting forth, which is that one or two millisecond differences within a gamma cycle are in fact important. So now he's talking about a phase code, which is similar to the kind of phase code, I believe, but on a different time scale. The phase code that I believe in is that spikes that have different phase in respect to a theta cycle carry different information. So that means that the different ensembles having different phase have are, are fine 20 milliseconds apart from each other and within an ensemble one or two milliseconds doesn't make any difference. So what Singer is talking about is an incredibly more sophisticated timing operation where let's say one item would be coded uh, for you know centered around t equals zero during a gamma cycle, and some other uh, ensemble would be coded for by a group of cells that fired together two milliseconds later. That kind of precision. So, okay, I mean, these are interesting alternatives. Um, still, another code that, that I've been very interested in uh, is what I call the burst duration code. So it's not only uh, that a cell bursts, and, but bursts, in fact, are not stereotyped. And so, uh, you know, we've plotted data from the thalamus, and you can see bursts uh, that vary from two spikes to five spikes. So why is that so interesting? Well, a burst involves spikes that are incredibly fast. They're going as fast as the nervous system can fire spikes, pretty much. Right? And as a result, uh, a in a burst duration code, you're getting graded information through a communication channel you know, in 15 milliseconds. You can say, well, this was strong, this was weak, this was in between. That's pretty impressive to get graded information through a channel in 15 milliseconds. And in my view, you know, what's so upsetting about a, a rate code is it doesn't even make any sense in the context of, of real brain operations of the sort that we do all the time. What do I mean by that? I mean, for a human to respond in 250 milliseconds uh, is, is quite reasonable. That whole memory search uh, that I described in my talk had a, a period of 300 milliseconds. So for a person to say, get, you give them a list, a short list, and then you ask them, was this item on the list? And 300 milliseconds, they're combing through their memory. They're, they've done perception. They've done motor control. 300 milliseconds later, bam, 
There's the answer. Well, in rate coding, I mean, to make it any kind of sensible concept of rate, you have to integrate spikes over 100 milliseconds. So how many operations can you do if each one integrates over 100 milliseconds? You know, you can do three operations. That's not much if you, you know, you have to distinguish between all the letters and control your motor program. And, and so we need to be thinking about neural operations that can be done in 10 milliseconds. Then you can stack a lot of them on top of each other. So that is, you know, one other view that let's find codes that, that work on a time scale that is suitable for high-speed brain computation. So I haven't really answered your question because I think, you know, if you put your mind to it, you'd come up with some other clever coding scheme and, you know, the more the merrier. It's a very early, <laughs> it's very early in, uh, in, in the coding game and, uh, you know, we may find other codes. It's kind of true that the, when you listen to people talk about rate coding and those sorts of ideas, they say the most information is the time of the first spike. But then again, how do you know when, the, what's that relative to, right? So at least uh, having a theta and gamma oscillation gives you the time base, like an oscilloscope. So you kind of know over the time. Right. But then the first spike actually has meaning. Right. And I don't see how you get around that without having some sort of carrier signal in which to... Mark uses your time marker. Well, in perception, it's it's whether perception itself, you know, has already you know theta gamma built into it. I don't know. There are some people who claim you can see oscillations already in the retina that these might be important, and uh, and there are people who claim that that, for instance, you can get the wagon wheel illusion in continuous light, as if there's kind of a frame rate to vision. But I'm not convinced of this. I'm, I'm just not sure. Is there a frame rate to vision? No. That idea would certainly, you know, if you did have a frame rate, then you could talk about the spike, which spike was first in each frame. But to me, the data is not, not, not clear yet. Have you thought a lot about how you might look at the um, readout of the codes? So it's one thing that you have a code and you have a plausible code, but the nice thing is to figure out how does someone actually read it out and interpret it. Well, if, if you think about the theta gamma code, then there's some really interesting specific physiological questions that can be analyzed. So for instance, the gamma code, so the, at least my version of the gamma code, is that, okay, cells should be part of an ensemble if they fire within two or three milliseconds of each other. So they should summate, or even maybe supersummate, superlinear. Um, so you would want the postsynaptic cell to react very differently depending upon whether you know, 10 spikes were all clustered in 10 milliseconds of each other or spread out over 20 milliseconds. And there are some really good candidates for that. So I'll mention a few. Uh, one 
is uh, an idea that Scarziani has pushed, and that has to do with a sort of window created by feed-forward inhibition. And the idea is that excitation is converging on both principal cells and inhibitory cells. Then the inhibitory cells stimulate the principal cells with inhibition. And so if you can cluster your excitatory spikes within a few milliseconds so that they impinge and summate on the target cell before the feed-forward inhibition arrives at the target cell, you have a big advantage. And in model systems, he's shown that to be the case, not surprisingly. And so that's one mechanism that would really, really favor tightly clustered spikes over non-clustered spikes in terms of firing a postsynaptic cell. But then there's some interesting work that Jeff McGee has done, which has to do with dendritic spikes. So these are spikes that can be set off in a, in a branch and of a dendrite and have nonlinear properties of spikes. But like all spikes, they, they have a very narrow window of coincidence. And so if you get the, get the two, two, two excitatory inputs that have a temporal separation greater than the spike duration, then they aren't going to cooperate in setting off the dendritic spike. And so there's another case where coincidence will, will help. And once the dendritic spike gets going, according to Jeff, it's a major factor in propagating an action potential down to the axon hillock and getting an output spike. Uh, so those are two sort of broad classes of mechanisms that would favor coincidence detection and would say, okay, I'm going to fire only to those cells that were inputs which are clustered within a gamma cycle. Now, with regard to the question of, of being sensitive to a particular theta phase, well, in the kinds of models that I've been thinking about or analyzing and, and the data, it looks as if in the hippocampus, if you are sensitive to spikes in the late theta phase, it would be a long-range prediction. It's, it would be saying, you know, way down there, you will find X. Whereas, and if you were sensitive to spikes at early theta phase, it would be a short-range prediction. So you could imagine that different structures might be very interested in getting long-range or short-range predictions. So how could you be, how could you have these target structures sensitive to theta phase? Well, Ole Jensen uh, has worked out some theoretical models of this, and conceptually they're very simple. You have to have sort of an additional theta signal going to these target structures, but offset. And then you use some principle by which that cell will only fire if there's input at this peak of this theta reference signal.
which is not difficult to imagine electrophysiologically. Okay, so that's a nice model of how you could make a phase-sensitive detector. So I thought we could spend some time talking about even longer time scales in the brain. Um, we, as you were just saying, we, we think a lot about synaptic events on a, mil, on a millisecond time scale, but this seems to neglect so many aspects of neural processing. For example, we know so little about what neuropeptides are doing over longer intervals in the brain. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I just think that um, it's an example of how we need to go back, or we, we are still in a situation where fundamental cellular properties are unclear. And you know, my view is that you can't separate cellular properties from network properties, and that the understanding can only occur if you are dealing simultaneously with with both at both levels or as many levels as possible and that that you know there must be some fundamental reason why all almost all neurons have peptide co-transmitters and it's just extremely hard well, not hard. There is no answer. I, I've been searching for answers. Somebody tell me why this is. I, I can sort of relate it to the first question, uh, which I think is sort of interesting, and it's an aspect of neuropeptides, is that <clears throat> their release is frequency-dependent. They're usually in dense corvesicles remote from the docking sites, so the neuron has to be in perhaps a bursting mode to release the peptides in the first place. So the bursting is necessary. But what's interesting about a lot of these peptides, um, like the opioids, um, substance P, uh, is that they affect uh, currents that affect bursting, like the M current. For instance, opioid peptides block the M current. Uh, somatostatin enhances the M current. And so you can see how the neuropeptides, by being released by high frequencies, can mod actually may allow in a chain of neurons, or a chain of layers, or a set of layers, that bursting could propagate through layers that has you know, a lot of inhibition, or recurrent inhibition, by allowing release of peptides, which, which would then allow propagation of bursting through layers. So, and so I think in my mind it relates back to the idea of, of bursting being very important, as you mentioned earlier. So, I have nothing at all against that idea, but you know, I guess uh, my point for, you know, for wanting to discuss this issue is, you know, in the end, you know, you cut open the brain, and they're just a bunch of cells. And so we just have to learn all the tricks that cells have at their disposal. And, and those are the tricks which are the building blocks uh, of the mind. And, um, you know, I've watched uh, the development of, of ideas about many aspects of this. So there was a time when people said, oh, look at short-term synaptic plasticity, facilitation and depression, isn't that boring? Who cares? And then, you know, we've gone through a kind of revolution over the years, and people are now saying, wow, look, look what you can do computationally with facilitation and depression. And, um, 
And that's exactly, you know, what should be our our goal is to take the building blocks, you know, that that, that we see and which sometimes see bore, seem boring and say, well, okay, what are these things good for? And, um, you know, and, uh, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that we have a, a really good picture of many of these things, including, you know, why are there these peptides? It's just... It's such a striking thing, and such an enormous diversity of them. Um, and at least, you know, so I'd like to see more thinking about that little, not little, but big aspect. And, but probably there aren't that many, you know, cell cellular processes that we could think about that we, in a sense, don't have good ideas about. I don't know. We. We could probably sit down and, and, and make a list. I mean, how many how many things do cells do? Um, and we ought to have a you know, a good picture of of the functionality of each one of them. Um, and maybe, maybe we're halfway there with getting the information, not with making the list. Because what we do is we're actually pretty good at going out and grabbing the individual pieces of information. What we don't do very well is sit down and put it all together and, oh, yeah. uh, and figure out what it says. So one of the great things about your work is that you seem to take the time to figure out what you think the data mean. It's, uh, it's not that you're a professional theoretician that never does any experiments. You do experiments too. Um, what do you think is the right, right way for us to individually approach it? Do you think we're well off by specializing into who collect, uh, stamp collecting, as Heim Walensky sometimes calls it, and then let other people put their stamps into a big book and figure out what it all means, or is it better for everybody to try to figure out their own, the meaning of their own stamps? Well, I think that it's a great game that everybody should participate in the grandest game there is. And if they don't want to do it, well, that's okay, because each one of us has a style. Um, but I don't like the idea of a you know enormous separation of theorists and experimentalists, and I think that there is already too much of that. And I feel like part of my success has been that that I kind of have a sense for the experiments. And at the same time, enough guts to go out there and speculate wildly. And ultimately, any theory is a wild speculation. But, you know, it has to be done. And um, so, from the point of view of, of generating people who can do this and do it in a you know, in an appropriate way, I think we ought to recognize that what it requires, you know, is a sensitivity to the to the data and the ability to analyze data even. And, you know, a person ought to, you know, have come through your lab as an experimentalist or somebody's lab to, to build up a sense of, of respect for, for the data and of the historical continuity of ideas 
about neuroscience. And so the idea of, of you know, a physicist coming in and suddenly, uh, you know, having a great insight into the mind, I don't think is very likely because it's, it's not constrained by enough data. We can all come up with ideas. The, 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 the question is how to constrain the ideas by the set of real possibilities. And so I think we ought to develop a path that people who you know, have an inclination to, you know, to theory and synthetic theory you know, really need to, you know, to go through labs, you know, in a very systematic way and, 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 and to gain the cumulative wisdom, you know, that has been generated by experimental scientists. So it isn't just starting de novo. If you had a student, a young student listening to this podcast that say, I really want to do that, what sort of mathematical training would you recommend they start out on that would be most applicable to sort of theoretical computation? Is, any, uh, is there any necessity of mathematics yeah. ever? I, I don't think so. I think that if it's a good idea, you could make a diagram. You could show it, you know, as a diagram. And, uh, you know, ultimately, um, you know, there may be some mathematical tricks that you need to make certain simplifications. And I, I do believe in the necessity of simulation. That is to say, once you sort of have an idea and you think, and you can draw it, and you say, I bet it'll do something. I bet you can build a machine based on these principles. I think it's really worthwhile to have the capability of, of actually simulating it. Because it's, in my experience, uh, I've been wrong a lot. That is, once I really get serious enough to you know, plot out all the variables and say, well, you know, this is this and this and this, you know, I find that my intuition was wrong sometimes. And, and, and you, so you need the feedback plus just the seriousness of listing all the variables. That in itself is a great exercise because, you know, until you got serious about it, you hadn't even thought of this variable as important. And so, so, I, I mean, I would be an absolute advocate that people who want to do this approach will ultimately have to prove to people that they can build a network that does this. That's the gold standard. Now, whether they have to use mathematics to prove that it could do it, you know, I don't know. In your experience, do you see that your approach has evolved over the years from a from a more experimental to a theoretical, or do you feel as though you began with some major theoretical issues in your mind and that drove the experimentation? Where do you, how do you trace your evolution? Well, yeah, I definitely feel that they went hand in hand. I, it was, I, I always describe myself as sort of an engineer first, 
even though I never were a physicist first, that whenever I have attacked a problem, it's always been, well, how could I do it? You know, if it was, you know, if I were to build a little memory switch, how in the hell could I do it out of protein? And that was one of the things that I got, that, that just puzzled me. And uh, oddly enough, um, you know, I was walking down the beach one day, and I was still working in photoreceptors at the time, working on rhodopsin uh, as a molecular switch, but thinking already about you know memory as needing molecular switches, and you know all of a sudden saw it a rather trivial way of using positive feedback autocatalysis that to make a memory switch. And this has you know, been something that I've gotten a lot of recognition for, but I, in a sense it was, the, it, it, you could walk up to almost anybody in any field and sort of say, well, well, you know, if you wanted to take proteins and you wanted to build a switch, you know, how would you do it? And they'd probably come up with the answer pretty quickly. It's like, so posing the question, in the sense, well, okay, we have dendritic spines, and it seems like each one has a synapse which is independently modifiable with an independent memory. And then saying, well, okay, this, does, this means that the memory is not in the cell body. This means that the memory is out at the synapse itself. This means that the synapse is likely to be made up, that the switch, the memory switch is likely to be a protein. So how would you build it? That was the hard part, getting to that point. Once you get to that point, you could walk up to almost anybody and say, well, can you come up with an idea of how to, how to build it? But anyway, the point is, is that you need to develop mental models, which then allow you to you know, design experiments. And so I think that's the, the to me, the, the beauty of physics is that you know, you're always looking for the principle of how it works. And I think that's a very good training, training for the mind, for neuroscience. So I also wanted to bring up um, the hippocampus specifically with request to the idea of novelty and how it's been suggested as a site for the detection of associative or configural novelty as opposed to the perirhinal cortex. Um, which is also involved in novelty, I suppose. Do you see a role for hippocampus in novelty detection? Well, I, I certainly do, and, but I respect the underlying sort of puzzling question you're asking. Is there a difference between different kinds of novelty? And I think that we know enough to know that that's certainly the case. And even from our own experience, we can see a novel object, but we can also see a well-known object in a novel situation, which is sort of a configural issue, or we can look over time and say that, you know, normally C comes after A and B, and uh, if suddenly we're presented with A, B, and someone says X, even though we perfectly well know X, 
the fact that it came right after ABC is a little bit of a shock. And I suspect that you know, different parts of the medial temporal lobe you know, will be involved in the novelty computation in, in different ways re relating to those differences. Um, it's one of the you know interesting things that that that, uh, that is that now that we know that the dopamine system responds to novelty not only to reward as I think most people have thought of it there are, are tremendously interesting philosophical issues that come out of, of seeing it this way. And, and even the words novelty and reward get confusing in interesting ways. Like, is novelty rewarding? Um, and just to speculate wildly, I've sort of wondered whether actually human evolution couldn't have been driven by a rather small change which made novelty rewarding. Because, boy, that would do a lot. And, I mean, for me, novelty is rewarding. I mean, I just will be driven to find some new thing because I get so excited by it uh, that I, I get a lot of reward out of it. And that will drive cultural evolution very fast when you get a whole bunch of people acting like that. So it's, it's interesting to think that a small little change in the wiring that made novelty rewarding could have such a big cultural effect. So I guess that brings us to more recent work on the hippocampus, which is kind of diverging from simple behavior and mechanisms of synaptic plasticity and is focusing more on the dynamic functions of the hippocampus based on subregions. In your opinion, does this shift reflect a significant and useful way to look at hippocampal function? Oh, I do believe it's a paradigm shift, and I believe it's representative of exactly the way we want to go. So we're all used to thinking about the, you know, the hierarchy of ideas in neuroscience. There's the, the molecules and the cells, and maybe the, the level that's gotten kind of short shrift has been networks. Sometimes people will jump from, from cells to behavior, but obviously the networks, you know, and the wiring diagram um, you know, is, you, is, is a level of analysis that one cannot escape. And I think it's amazing when you go back even to Cajal's work, how this was all laid out. And it's so dramatic in the cerebellum, so dramatic in the basal ganglia, and certainly also in the hippocampus. You've got these separate interrelated circuits that you can just see in the Golgi already. And um, I think there are just extremely few cases where one can even begin to make sense of this, but just as, you know, understanding the brain must necessarily entail, you know, understanding how neurons and their little bag of tricks 
work together to make things happen, it's equally incumbent upon us to to say that you know the wiring diagram and the and the circuitry makes sense. You know this is how it is actually done, and that I think it's only you know when you're down to this to that level of of analysis. You know how do the molecular constituents make a cell do this set of things, and how does that contribute to the circuit function, and how do the multiple circuits interact, and how does that interaction produce behavior? When you can satisfy all of those things, then you are entitled to say, well, okay, to a first approximation, we understand something about how the brain works, which is where we all want to go, and I am actually an optimist in thinking that we will get there. I think we will get there very fast. As I said, I think it will be a nonlinear process. I think that all of a sudden things will start to really fall into place. Thanks very much. I think we've come full circle. Thanks for being with us today. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs>